Well, greetings and welcome to this session with Grace Point Church. Uh, this is August 2nd, and we are gathered together virtually again to worship, and I want to welcome each one of the Grace Point family as well as our guests who are with us here today. We are thankful that you are here with us today. We're continuing our study through the letter to the church at Colossae, the little letter of Colossians in your New Testament. So if you would take your copy of God's Word so you can follow along. And we will continue as we move through chapter 3 and into chapter 4 today, hopefully, if we have enough time. Uh, I've said before, in the last session, we talked a little bit about God's will and knowing God's will. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, books written on knowing God's will, some very helpful, some not so helpful. Uh, but oftentimes, uh, we think of God's will as those big issues in our lives, you know, who we should marry, what job we should take, should we move to this place or that place. And then the other extreme is perhaps we drive around the block two or three times and say, if it's God's will, he'll open up a parking space for me. Uh, but God's will can be something that is mysterious and something that seems to be in unsolvable. So uh, I want to encourage you today that God's will is uh, in black and white in his word, and especially here in this letter to the church at Colossae. The Apostle Paul is writing from imprisonment in Rome, and uh, he is writing to these believers to encourage them and to reinforce with them the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us through this series, this study, you know that in chapters one and two, uh, it's all about what Christ has done. And it's about Jesus Christ's priority, supremacy, his preeminence in the life of Christian believers. And then in chapters three and four, we find the application to that doctrinal truth. And we've uh, begun chapter three and we're moving into chapter four, uh, Lord willing today. And uh, we are seeing the application, in other words, in light of what the Apostle Paul has taught us in chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 4 tell us, then how shall we live? And today we are going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 6, perhaps if we get that far. Uh, but uh, the title of this message is, How Then Shall We Live Together? It's about relationships. And so we don't need to struggle so much with knowing God's will. Uh, yes, we want a roadmap out ahead of us. And uh, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this letter, is giving us the application uh, to what it means to be a Christian and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, in chapter 1, he has a prayer of intercession. He prays for believers. Chapter 1, verse 9. The Apostle Paul prays, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you would be filled, listen to this, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual <clears throat> wisdom and understanding. Why is that? Verse 10 of chapter 1, So that, here's the purpose, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. And he goes on in that prayer. And so by the time we get to chapter three, he is telling us what God's will is. And so how do we live before a watching world? How do we live before our extended families and uh, our neighbors and our classmates and our coworkers and people at the grocery store and elsewhere? And so uh, one of the greatest problems uh, we face is perhaps living a consistent 
life, a consistent life before a watching world. It's helpful to remember that uh, really the secret to spiritual living, the secret to Christianity, to the true Christianity, can be put in one sentence. The Apostle Paul uses it in the letter to the Galatian church in chapter 5 of that letter, verse 16, where he says, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so we have, if you've been with us in the previous sessions, you know that in chapter 3, beginning, there's two commands here. In verse 1, he says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He is our advocate, our intercessor. He is continually ministering for us. Then the second command is verse 2, set your mind on the things above. And he gives the reason for that, the basis or foundation for the Christian life. Uh, and then he goes on to consider, in verse 5, consider your members of your earthly body as dead. And he has two vice lists here of five uh, elements each. And they're about our attitudes and our actions uh, of the old life before we were believers in Christ. And so he talks about the immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed that uh, characterizes our lives before Jesus Christ. And he uses the picture of uh, taking off filthy rags and putting on fine clothing. And then the second vice list is take off the filthy rags of anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech, and do not lie to one another. So it's about uh, our, our verbal communication also. And he says, put these off, lay them aside. And then last session, we looked at verses 12 through 17, which is the list of virtues, if you will, Christ-like virtues. And really, these are a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and then bear with one another, forgiving each other. And he goes on to talk about the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts and being thankful and uh, let the word of Christ richly dwell in us. And so the key is to spiritual growth is being in the word of God and allowing it to inform our lives and teach us. Well, today we come to verses 18, chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 6, and it is about our relationships and fundamental relationships in life. He's talking about our family relationships, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, labor and management or our work relationships. And then he uh, summarizes it all relationships in chapter four, verses two through six. And what's interesting in this paragraph, there are 11, 11 imperative verbs. Now the imperative has the force of a command and it's exhortations, these are commands. These are not suggestions for the Christian life. These are commands from God himself and uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit that every believer in Christ has, we can live out our lives. As Peter said, we can live lives of godliness because he has given us the power to do so. Doesn't mean we're perfect, but it does mean that we have the access, the opportunity to make good decisions, correct decisions, in our lives, especially in relationships. So you think of the first part of chapter three, keep seeking the things above, set your mind on Jesus Christ, and uh, lay aside those vices of the old life, put on the Christ-like virtues, and it's gonna have ramifications in your life and your relationships. It's gonna have ramifications in your family, in your workplace, <clears throat> and uh, also in all of your relationships as we practice through the power of the Holy Spirit, this consistent Christian life, these 11 imperative verbs. Well, in verses 18 through 21, 
The Apostle Paul addresses family relationships, family relationships. He talks about wives, husbands, children, and fathers. And so when you look at this and you read through this paragraph, make sure that he's addressing you. If you're a wife, pay attention. If you're a husband, pay attention to your part. If you're a child still in the home, pay attention to your part. And if you're a father, pay attention to your responsibility. And then later we will see, you know, uh, employees and employers and then everyone. And so today you may find yourself and you may not have children at home. You may be a widower or widower or unmarried. And uh, you think, well, this doesn't apply to me. But yet you can encourage others as you understand this passage and pray for others in their relationships, in their families. Because as a church family, we are vitally connected in Jesus Christ and what happens in our community and individually affects the community and is important. And so we see family relationships and wives have one responsibility. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, he says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, this word, be subject, that verb, that's the command, that's the imperative verb, uh, to your husband is uh, much maligned in our culture, in our society, in a, a 20th and 21st uh, century application of that word or overlaying of a cultural understanding of that word. We think of subjection, inferiority, all, all of these things, that the, somehow the woman in the family, the mother, the wife, is less than a person. But the verb, this verb occurs 38 times in the New Testament, and uh, 23 of those times the Apostle Paul uses this word, and this is the only occurrence in the letter of Colossians. <clears throat> and there is a difference in the voice of the word. The voice is like active voice or middle voice, it's part of the grammar of the word. And when it occurs in the active voice, that means that the power belongs to God to subject something. For instance, this is evidenced in 1 Corinthians 15, where Christ subjected all things unto himself. Elsewhere, we see it in the active voice like that. In the middle voice, which is this verb, in the middle voice, it means it's a voluntary submission. It's something we do and make a decision on our own which resembles Christian humility. We talked about humility in the last session. It, may describe, it does describe Christ's submission to God the Father, again in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere. He came to do the Father's will. It was a voluntary submission by God the Son to God the Father. And it's uh, also used in Ephesians 5.21 of believers in Jesus Christ being submissive or subject to one another. And that, that context parallels this context here. It's also believers submitting in the exercise of their spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 14. And it's the proper order for uh, the wives in the marriage relationship, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3 here. And uh, this uh, use, this middle voice use, it uh, appeals to free agents to take their submission to others voluntarily. The term does not suggest slavery or servitude. Sadly, our current cultural situation, our society in the last, uh, at least the last 60 years has seen this as a negative term, a pejorative term of being subject to somebody else, especially here in the West where we are so fiercely independent of our freedom. 
And this, by the way, this verse is not written to you husbands because uh, it never calls for the husband to make his wife submit, let me say that. And uh, her heart would not be in it anyway, if you could. Besides, Paul addresses wives here, not husbands, and in this context, the word differs radically from the word which describes the role of children and employees or slaves which are to follow, and that's the word obey. Notice he uses two different words here. The wife is to be subject to her husband, and so some would interpret that as that the wife is inferior in the marriage relationship, and some express concern about that, thinking uh, that way is really unbiblical, and it's a misunderstanding of these passages. First of all, since Paul, he used the term in relationship to the attitude of Jesus, the Lord of all. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. It's used uh, in that context of a, of a being in the highest office, Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Savior. Uh, both wives and husbands need to recognize that this has nothing to do with personal worth and value. Secondly, Paul describes a functional situation which reflects God's plan for families here on earth. He was not speaking in regard to the essence of who a person is, okay? Make that very clear here. There's a functional subordination, but an essential equality. Differences of roles to accomplish specific functions do not call for categories of superior or inferior. It is better to speak of suited for and not suited for. In our family, in my marriage relationship, I'm suited for certain things, my wife is suited for certain things, and I'm not suited for some of the things she can do, and vice versa. And so this division is found in God, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit each have different operations or ministries. That is a functional subordination to one another, but they are all equally divine and that is essential equality. Thus, Christian relationships here on earth are patterned after those of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and husbands and wives should endeavor to understand their roles in this light. All of us need to understand it as Christians. We are, when we are called in Ephesians 5 to be submissive to one another, and so notice too here that there are moral limits, moral limits in verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord, okay? There are moral limits to submission. Wives are not obligated to follow their husband's leadership if it conflicts with specific spiritual, uh, scriptural uh, commands. Submission cannot be demanded again. The father, the father, God the Father, did not demand it of God the Son. It is a voluntary submission which wives are exhorted to make because it is fitting and proper. It is right in the sight of God. <clears throat> and then Paul follows with a word to husbands. Look at verse 19. Husbands, and here's the command. Love your wives and do not be embittered. That's another command. Uh, do not be embittered against them. So two commands for the husbands here. You're to love your wife. And here the word love is that sacrificial love that expects nothing in return. It's not uh, eros love, which is a, a uh, physical love. It's not Philadelphia kind of love. It's love of the brother, even though we express those things. But this is the love that is expressed by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. It's the it's the uh, willingness to sacrifice self for the good of another. 
Husbands, love your wives. We're to exercise loving leadership and not dictatorial dominion. And uh, that's why you are in a partnership together. And do, the second command is do not be embittered against her. Do not be embittered against her. Uh, put off harshness, this old nature. Husbands are not to be caustic, bitter, resentful, or sarcastic towards their wives. And we know the, how that affects each one of us when we are the recipients of the embittered people against us. And so that should not be found in the marriage relationship. And Paul now follows with the word to children. And notice their command changes. You know, wives be subject, husbands love, do not be embittered. Here, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Be obedient is the command there. And the word obey comes from the Greek word, which is, means to bear under something, bear under someone. Thus, children are exhorted to listen, basically, to their parents, recognizing that they are over them and have authority over their lives. The Living Bible uh, puts it well from the book of Proverbs. Young man, obey your father and your mother. Tie their instructions around your fingers so you will not forget. Take to heart all of their advice. Every day and all night long, their counsel will lead you and save you from harm. When you wake up in the morning, let their instructions guide you into a new day. For their advice is a beam of light directed into the dark corners of the mind to warn you of danger and give you a good life. And obviously, as children grow, as we are rearing children to maturity, they make more and more and more of their decisions. And yet, uh, we can give them our wisdom as parents, and yet sometimes uh, they don't need our opinions, do they? And as they get older, I've finally learned to ask my children, do you, when they ask me a question, to ask them first, do you want my opinion on this matter? and uh, to make sure they really want my opinion because sometimes parents can offer their opinions and convictions without it being wanted by the child. So be obedient as children. This is well-pleasing to the Lord at the second part of verse 20. Look at verse 20 there. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Are you sensing that God is setting up a structure for the family here? He knows what is best. He knows what works in his creation, what he is calling us to do. So his will for our families is husbands to love your wives, wives uh, to be subject to your, to your husbands and children obey. And then verse 21, he goes on to talk to the men of the family, the fathers, and this is how to rear your children. Look at verse 21. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Do not exasperate is the command we find here. Exasperation, now all of us have experienced exasperation with someone else. It's just frustrating, isn't it? We get frustrated. The word for in exasperate or embitter is from the word to stir up, arouse, irritate, annoy, all of those things. And uh, why? Because you don't want your children losing heart or becoming discouraged over how they are treated. Uh, children can become very discouraged in three areas at least, probably many more, but uh, first, if you ignore them, if you simply ignore them, a father who has no time for his children soon creates in the child a deep-seated resentment. Uh, the child may not know how to articulate or explain the, explain the problem, but uh, they feel unimportant and worthless in that sense. Secondly, a source of exasperation is to indulge your children. 
You know, some people approach child-rearing to give them, want to be their good buddy and give them everything they want. That soon makes them restless and dissatisfied because we all need boundaries. We all need boundaries in the Christian life. We need guidance, direction, and uh, we don't need superficial indulgence. Such indulgence will frequently create deep-seated, sometimes lifelong feelings of resentment. Thirdly, uh, we can exasperate our children by insulting them, by treating them as less than human in one sense, calling them names or putting them down. There's story after story of people who've grown up into adulthood so marked and, and, and wounded by what their father said to them. It's also a source of resentment in children. They will become discouraged and maybe even put off the things of God. Uh, one of the things about uh, children is they tend to take our values and attitudes one step further. And uh, that is seen throughout history. And also values are things that decay. Whatever you value is in a decaying state and you have to re-energize it and rebirth it in the lives of those who follow you. So Paul moves now from the family, the home environment. Now he goes to the workplace. Uh, the section here beginning in verse 22 and clear down through chapter 4, verse 1, is a longer section. It's expanded in comparison to the family section. And I think the reason for that is it's due to the unique situation at the church at Colossae where the runaway slave Onesimus, remember him, was returning to his master, Philemon. You can read about that story in Philemon, uh, Colossians 4, 9, and in the book of Philemon. The category of slave master in, of course, in our culture, in our day and age, would be equivalent to the modern employee-employer's relationship. The arena is the workplace. Uh, there were over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire by some estimations, and there were different categories of slaves. We often think of slavery like early in, the, in, in our country. Uh, this is a little bit different, but uh, the Apostle Paul is addressing how Christians are to live before a watching world, especially in the workplace, because that's sometimes the very place where the tension arises on how to live the Christian life. So these labor management relationships, look at verse 22, slaves in all things obey, there's that same word that was given to children, those who your masters on earth, not with external service, but those as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Employees, attitude and motive in your work, in verse 22. Obey those who are your masters, the bosses, those who are managing your part of the business or wherever you're at, with sincerity of heart and fearing the Lord. Uh, this was a lesson I learned when I worked and operated heavy equipment in forest road construction. When I came to the point of recognizing that, yes, I was working for a company, yes, I was working for my immediate supervisor, but ultimately, I was doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was my ultimate supervisor, my ultimate owner. And uh, when I realized that, it changed my whole perspective and attitude about the day-to-day -day activities of forest road construction and operating heavy equipment. And secondly, in verses 23 and 24, the employee work ethic, the work ethic. Look at 23. Uh, let's see, whatever you do in your work, you do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. There it is, right there. Why? Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Uh, one of the times I recognized this, I was in a 
deep trench where we were laying a culvert and it was snowing and raining at the same time. There was mud up to our knees and we were trying to lay a gigantic culvert to direct water in this road construction. It was miserable, it was terrible. And the Lord just put it on my heart that I'm doing it for him and it changed my attitude about what that was looking like. So work ethic, there's a attitude and motive. And then versus in this work ethic, there's a payday someday. There's a reward for your inheritance here in verse 24. And also the opposite of this, he addresses in verse 25, employee duplicity, double-edged warning. Look at 25 with me. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. And of course, if you're duplicitous with an employer, the chances are that you might be released from your position and you will not have a paycheck anymore. And also, I think there is no partiality with God. And there's this idea that as we do things heartily unto the Lord, we are rewarded, maybe not in this life, but in the life to come. And uh, we will see that. I was reading about former astronaut Frank Borman. Frank Borman, after he retired as an astronaut, he took over uh, the head of Eastern Airlines many years ago. And uh, he was determined to make the airline's service the best in the country. One day as he's walking through a particular department in the offices, Borman saw an employee resting his feet on the desk and the telephone on the desk was ringing incessantly and Borman asked, aren't you gonna answer that phone? And the man answered, this isn't my department, apparently not recognizing who Frank Borman was. I work in maintenance, the man said with his feet on the desk. Frank Borman replied, not anymore you don't. And so he immediately uh, got the reward without partiality there. And in verse chapter four, in, in fact, in our translations, remember the four, the big numbers here are, are not inspired by God. They have been put in by editors of the Bible to help us find the address. And so unfortunately, I think that big number four occurs right here. When in reality, verse one of chapter four continues with the previous argument. Employers must be just and fair, just and fair masters. Look at verse one of chapter four, masters, here's addressing the masters. Here's another imperative, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. And so he relates this to the employers, to the supervisors or the bosses, to the people who have oversight over others in the duties of their job, that they too uh, have uh, justness and fairness and knowing that they ultimately have a master in heaven. It's not the CEO in some other city. It's not the board of directors or the stockholders, but it's Jesus Christ himself. And finally, there comes a paragraph of general counsel for Christian responses in relationships and daily circumstances. And how do we live today in the midst of a world just seems like turned upside down uh, with false values and with much conflict, shame, and degrading practices. We're inundated with it every day. How should we then live? Here are Paul's words in verses two through six. Look at chapter four, verse two, and here's another command. Devote, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in, it, in an attitude of thanksgiving. Wow, he talked about gratitude earlier. Verse three, praying at the same time for us as well. And he's talking about the Apostle Paul for Epaphras, who was there bringing the report about Colossae, to Tim, about Timothy and about others, that God will open up a door for us 
for the words that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear the way that I ought to speak. And uh, so there is that aspect. He's focusing this prayer, his persistent prayer, uh, that there would be a devotion with an attitude of thanksgiving so that others would have a, proclam a clear proclamation of the word of God. And that's why I covet your prayers, because I have the, the privilege, responsibility, and also the burden of proclaiming the word of God. And I want to be accurate, and I want God to be glorified through this. And so everybody who teaches God's word today should covet this prayer and ask for others to pray for them in that aspect. And then in verses five and six, we are to be wise walkers and salty speakers. Look at verse five and six. Conduct, here again is, the, is that 11th uh, imperative. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech, he's going back to our speech, always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Wise walkers, living wisely before unbelievers, make the most of the opportunity. Verse six, salty speech, wholesome talkers, grace-filled speech, knowing how we should respond. Again, I hate to, to harp on it, but social media, uh, I have seen too many Christians be ugly, and just terrible towards people who may not know Christ as Savior. And if they know you're a Christian and some of the things you post on the internet, they're gonna ask, why should I wanna be a Christian? What is this Jesus stuff? Because of the way people speak and argue and are in a rage on the internet. The salty speech, wholesome talkers, you know, you think about salt, you think it's a preservative, it creates thirst and it enhances flavor. And we need to know exactly how we are to do it. So the Apostle Paul began chapter 3 by urging believers to look above. He has closed the chapter the same way. He wants wives to look above to Christ as their example of submission. Husbands are to look above to Christ as their example of love. Children are to look above to Christ as their example of obedience. Slaves are to look above to Christ as their impartial rewarder. Masters are to look above to Christ as their heavenly judge. Spirituality is not mysterious, it's not a mystery, it's not hidden from us, it's a matter of understanding our identification with Christ, having our lifestyle transformed, and honoring Christ in our relationships, living it out. Ordinary sounding stuff, you would say, but with Christ at the center, it becomes extraordinary indeed. When you know the truth about Christian living as declared in his word, he invites us to live an ordinary life in an extraordinary way. Praise God. Let me send you out with this benediction from 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Amen and amen. Have a good week. God's blessings upon you.